With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host on the show. And today I'm thrilled to talk with Michael Guerin about his terrific new book, Comrades Betrayed, Jewish World War I Veterans Under Hitler, published by Cornell. Mike earned his doctorate at Clark University, and he's now been teaching at West Point for several years. And his book is a fascinating study of the experiences and responses of Jewish veterans in the period 1919 to 1945. It's full of quotes and anecdotes and stories and excerpts from a seemingly never-ending stack of diaries, letters, and journals. But it's also deeply informed by gender studies and military history and Holocaust studies. And it's a a superb example of historical excavation. I'm looking forward to talking about it with Mike. And so, Mike, thanks for joining us and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. Kelly, thank you for inviting me to be here to talk about Comrades Betray. It's Betrayed. It's a, it's a real honor. So I always start uh, with the same question, which is to uh, give the audience a chance to know a little bit about you by asking you to introduce yourself. So, um, so tell me a little bit about what you do and, and um, why you do it. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Um, currently, I am an assistant professor of history at the United States Military Academy at West Point. I'm also deputy director of the Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies here. And this is for me. Uh, this is a good place for me to uh, to tell everybody that the views and the opinions expressed by me here do not necessarily state or reflect those of the United States Military Academy. Um, as mentioned, as you mentioned, I've been at West point for a couple of years. I'm, I'm going on my fifth year here now. Prior to that, um, I was an adjunct professor at Boston University. And prior to that, I taught at Northeastern University as well. So uh, I've been adjuncting um, at, at a few places before I had the fortune uh, to come here to West Point as a postdoc. That was a temporary job that ended up becoming permanent. So I, I believe the center that you uh, are, are assist with is relatively new. Do you want to share something with the audience about what it does and what its purpose is? So the Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at West Point, it is new. It's been uh, in existence for, uh, for about 10 years now. And I'm uh, exactly uh, the, the second scholar working here. Mm-hmm. For the longest time, it was my boss, Dr. Fry, who headed the center. 
And uh, what we do is uh, we, we do more than just uh, teach Holocaust and genocide studies courses. Um, our, um, our mission is to, uh, is to teach cadets um, about prevention. You know, we're in the business mm-hmm. of uh, preventing mass atrocities and genocides from occurring, or at least to, uh, to, to reduce the risk of mass atrocity. And uh, we do that by, uh, through history by using the examples of the past to get cadets and, and students and other faculty members to uh, analyze uh, genocide, acts of mass atrocity, and uh, think creatively about uh, preventing them. So that's our, that's our mission. I, um, people always ask me, it must be hard, um, uh, you know, <laughs> mentally, you know, to, mm-hmm. to work uh, in, in this field, um, you know, reading about mass atrocity and horrific events all the time. And it certainly is, but uh, but I remind them that uh, that we're in the business of prevention. That that's what we do, um, and to me that's that's always been inspiring. So you've written a book about Jewish World War One veterans, and I want to acknowledge here just briefly, as listeners will probably be aware of some of the challenges of language, and so I'll talk about. Jewish veterans recognizing that maybe some of them didn't understand their own identity as Jewish, but but for convenience, we'll, we'll use that. Um, you've written a book about Jewish veterans of, of, of the First World War. What got you interested in that pro- project? That's a, that's a good question, Kelly, and I've, I've actually been interested in this topic for a long time, really um, since, um, oh God, maybe even my late teenage years. Um, I grew up, I was born in Germany. Um, I grew up in Germany. I spent um, eight, about eight years living there. And um, and even after uh, moving to the United States, I visited uh, my relatives and grandparents there usually every summer. And uh, as, a, as a young teenager, I was always interested in war monuments. I would you know, I would walk up and look at them. I, I may have been one of the only people to, to stop and read all the names on these monuments. And I noticed that in the town where my grandparents lived, that there were Jewish names on this war, uh, war memorial. Um, and this was a monument to the fallen of World War I. Um, I asked my grandfather about this and I asked other people about this because um, in a way it surprised me. I, you know, uh, Jews up to that point, um, you know, that this was uh, about 30 years ago and uh, Jews really hadn't been written into the history of, of World War I, at least not yet. So this kind of uh, caught me by surprise. And I was also um, um, really curious about their fate during the Third Reich. Um, how could a government treat somebody who had uh, sacrificed for the nation, who had uh, who had given his life for the uh, for the for the fatherland? Um, you know, were were Jewish veterans persecuted in the same way that ordinary Jews were? And 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 what what happened to them? I was just curious, and nobody seemed to know. Um, so this is something that's always kind of been nagging at me for a, a, a very long time. When I did get into college and majored in history and did get into grad school, um, I realized that nobody had written on this topic yet. When I was speaking with my advisor, Thomas Kuna, you know, he suggested I, uh, I focus on this issue because nobody had written about it. There had been no books written about uh, Jewish veterans during the Nazi period. There were um, always mentioned almost uh, in, in passing um, in many of the really good histories of, of the Holocaust. And there's so many of them out there. But they were largely subsumed in this in this greater narrative of Jewish suffering rather than being examined very deliberately. So this, this, uh, this interested me. 
And about the same time, I came across a photograph that's uh, that you'll see on the cover of my book. This is a uh, this is a, a photograph of Richard Stan, who was um, who, who lived in Cologne. He was a business owner in Cologne, and uh, he was protesting um, the Nazis picketing his storefront on April first, nineteen thirty three, during the April boycott. And this is the only photograph we have of uh, Jewish veterans using um, self-assertion, kind of demonstrating against these Nazi measures. And um, a couple of things, you know, this photographs on the cover of my book, the, the actual photos on the inside of it. And a couple of things um, struck me about this um, right away. I mean, first off, in this photograph, you see two of the most recognizable symbols in German history, the Iron Cross and the swastika. And in this case, it's almost like they're in conflict with each other, in opposition to each other. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And, um, and here you see in, in the photo, you, you see uh, Stan, who is uh, a World War I veteran, um, a so-called Frontkämpfer. This was a German word for frontline veteran. Literally translated, it means frontline fighter. And this was a, an exalted status in Germany, and especially during the Third Reich. And um, a stormtrooper, a much younger stormtrooper, almost a pubescent stormtrooper is standing next to him. And the tension in that photograph is, I mean, it, it's almost palpable, uh, this, 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 this tension here. And um, the power here is with Stern, with, with, with Stan, his confidence and his poise. Um, it exemplifies his higher status and it almost diminishes this this Nazi stormtrooper who seems to be very, very uncomfortable. Um, and so I've never seen a photograph like this where the Holocaust perpetrator is diminished like this by the victim. Um, and so um, and so th those two things, just a longstanding interest in this photograph that I've, 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 I've looked at, we see it, I, I think it's become common in the last couple of years, but it, it really in intrigued me and I wanted to know more. And um, yeah, there hadn't anything been written on it. So that's that's where the journey began. Yeah, the photo is striking. And, and so is the narrative you use to begin the introduction. So, so to frame the book, I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit um, about who Julius Kotzman was and, and why you chose his story to start your book. Yeah, so the book starts with the story of, uh, of Julius Katzmann, and uh, he was a, a business owner in the town of Würzburg, which is a medium-sized town in Franconia, which is a part of a, a Bavaria today. And he was the owner of a, of a very successful textile business in Würzburg. Uh, Katzmann, he was um, an acculturated Jew. He considered himself um, uh, he, he considered himself uh, German first and, uh, and, and Jewish second. He considered himself um, a Jewish citizen of, of Germany. And in 1914, he volunteered uh, to fight in, in World War I along with his brother. Um, you know, like, like many, like many uh, young men at this time, um, he volunteered, you know, uh, thinking that he might, that the war would be over by Christmas and that he'd miss out on it. So he was a, he was enthusiastic about being able to, to, to serve in the army during the war. And uh, he ended up uh, serving four years on the Western Front 
where he was uh, wounded, where he was uh, wounded. He was uh, awarded the Iron Cross second class and the Iron Cross first class. And before the war was over, he was given a field commission. He was uh, promoted into the officer ranks. Um, returning, so he, he returned home from the war. He, he was uh, he was highly decorated. He was a, a former officer in Würzburg in 1918. It was one of the, the places uh, in Germany, uh, next to Berlin, next to Munich, next to several other towns where there was a, a communist insurrection. And in April 19, uh, 1919, the, uh, the, the Spartacists, this, this was a, a Marxist um, organization, they briefly took control of the town and the town hall for about three days. Kutzman was one of the, uh, was, was, uh, one of the men who volunteered for the citizens' militia, the Einwohnerwehr, um, and helped to, to put down this, this communist insurrection. So these things in and of themselves, they weren't really, they, they aren't really that remarkable. Many Jews, they did volunteer to fight in World War I. Many of them came back with uh, medals and, and, and as, as officers. What is remarkable is that, uh, is that, is, is that up until 1938, um, until the eve of uh, Kristallnacht, um, Katzmann's business was still largely intact. Um, he had not been arrested or uh, detained by the Gestapo at this time. In his life, I mean, he seemed to live a very, quote unquote, normal middle class existence up until 1938, despite Nazi intimidation, despite anti-Semitic laws that have been put into place, despite um, harassment and persecution. And I found this remarkable because it kind of challenged this narrative that that uh, that many histories of the of, of the Holocaust uh, follow that this this narrative of Jewish powerlessness, this uh, this the story of uh, Jews encountering a, a social death and being neighborless by 1935, being, not having friends and and, and neighbors left, and, and kind of being outcast in their society. This wasn't Julius Kutzmann's story. Uh, his business was successful. He still had a large circle of non-Jewish friends, including uh, several officers, uh, Wehrmacht officers, who were garrisoned in, in Würzburg. This was a, a garrison town. So I, I found this remarkable in and of itself. Um, like many um, Jewish men, uh, Katzmann, he was arrested on, uh, on the night of uh, 9 and 10 November, Kristallnacht. And he was uh, he was deported to Buchenwald um, along with thousands of other Jewish men. Um, what happened though was uh, was 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 really nothing short of remarkable. Um, the employees working for his textile business they uh, they got together and they sent a letter. They sent several letters actually, but one of them went to the Reich Chancellery in Berlin. It was addressed to to, to Hitler. Um, and in this letter, they asked uh, they asked that Katzmann be released from custody and set free. And among the reasons they uh, they gave for that was his World War One record, the fact that he was a former officer, that he had uh, earned an Iron Cross, uh, he had been wounded in action, and because of this, he had uh, quote unquote proven his Germanness. And this would be uh, a phrase I would I would see again and again later on. This notion that that uh, that that serving your country, that fighting in the war, would uh, would would prove one's Germanness is something that uh, that says a lot about the status of the military, masculinity, and uh, and, and service in war and and uh, national identity. Um, but um, but this letter was uh, was sent to the Rice Chancery. There were other letters also sent to other government ministers. Um, and uh, it was in his Gestapo file in Würzburg, which I was able to read. 
And this letter was signed by 25 of Katzmann's employees. Several of these employees were Nazi party members. Um, at least one was also an SS, excuse me, an SS member. So I have never seen anything like this before during Kastanacht, any kind of collective action, any kind of collective response from the German public um, in support of, uh, of, of a Jewish person who had been arrested. This is the only time I have I've seen this again. Later on, about a year later, after I, I was finished in Würzburg reading through Gestapo files like this one, I was at the Holocaust Museum in D.C. as a fellow. And uh, through the International Tracing Service, I found a, a fragment of, uh, of, uh, of, of a memo that had been sent to Munich. Um, and that fragment of, of documents, there was uh, th- this letter, the same letter, um, had also been um, sent to Franz Ritter von Epp, who was the who was the governor general of Bavaria at the time, a very high-ranking Nazi. He was also a notorious Freikorps leader, and he also saw a co- received a, a copy of this letter. So um, we don't know exactly what happened next, but a day or two after these letters were received, a day or two after there was some um, back and forth between Gestapo offices about uh, about what to do. Katzmann was released from Buchenwald and allowed to return home. So this was an example of a, of a successful intervention. And it, and it shows it was a, as an example that uh, Jewish men that were not powerless, they had, uh, they had the means to use the record of serving in the war, this record of, of military service to overturn their status as uh, quote unquote Jews. And um, yeah. And, and um and exert some agency during the Third Reich. Yeah, that's a remarkable story, and it frames many of the themes that, that you talk about in the book. And, and so let's start to unpack some of those. And you start with World War I, and I guess I'd start by asking you, is there, uh, or was there, as you were preparing this book, kind of a tra- traditional or received historical understanding of the experience of Jewish soldiers and their responses to that experience in World War I? And, and, and how does your narrative differ from that? Yeah, that, that, that's a really good uh, question, Kelly. And uh, there, the, the, the story I, I read about Jews in World War I followed a very similar trajectory. Um, and that is that uh, Jews volunteered um, en masse in, in 1914 uh, to fight in the German army during World War I. Jewish community, uh, community, community leaders, they, uh, they wholeheartedly supported the German war effort, um, hoping, to, hoping to use this as a moment to uh, overturn anti-Semitic stereotypes and to achieve equal rights in Germany. And... Um, that the narrative continues that uh, that that during the war, um, anti-Semitic they, they enca- uh, Jewish soldiers encountered anti-Semitism in the army. They encountered anti-Semitism in the trenches. Evidence for this being the so-called Judenzählung, the uh, infamous Jew count. This was um, a census of Jewish soldiers that was carried out by military authorities in October, November of 1916, whereby all. Uh, Jewish soldiers were counted in the trenches to see how many Jews occupied positions behind the lines compared to, uh, to in relation to how many were actually um, in frontline units doing the fighting. 
Um, and, uh, and this was held as evidence um, that, uh, that, that Jews would never be uh, considered equal citizens in Germany. Um, and as a result of these ex- uh, experiences, Jews returned home deeply shaken by these experiences in the trenches and on the home front. Uh, they were shaken by uh, this, this rising anti-Semitism um, uh, by, by, uh, by German nationalists at home. So really the, the story I read was one of uh, Jewish disillusionment. World War I was, was kind of, was kind of uh, evidence for, uh, for Jews that they would never be accepted into German society. Um, and one that us uh, in this experience set Jews on the path to Zionism um, or to wholeheartedly support the establishment of a democratic republic in 1918. And um, there's been a lot of research in the last couple of years. There are, uh, books by Tim Grady, for example, um, have pointed out that this wasn't necessarily the case. Um, there was anti-Semitism both um, during the war and uh, on the home front as well. But, uh, but when we analyze the letters of Jewish soldiers, for example, we see that Jewish soldiers or in, in letters and di- uh, sent from the field or in diaries um, that, that, they were, that, they, that they had with them, that anti-Semitism was, was rarely mentioned. Um, the, the Jew count, which had, uh, which had been central to, uh, to scholarship on Jews during World War I, and uh, which had been analyzed really um, after the war as well by Zionist activists, um, this, this was really a, a non-issue for many Jewish soldiers serving in the field. Far more in, in these letters and these ego documents uh, um, that, uh, from Jewish soldiers, um, we hear about com- comradeship in the trenches, about, um, about fighting for a common cause, about uh, moments of inclusion you know, with, with other Germans. And so, um, and so the voices of Jewish soldiers that were very different from much of the scholarship, this narrative of disillusionment uh, that one saw. And so, so the war ends with the sense, well, actually, let me say, let me back up one second. You've mentioned this ideal of a frontkämpfer, of, 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 a, of the community of veterans that is established in World War One. Can you talk about how, is that community one, that that sense of community and that sense of set of values and that experience, is that one that's broadly shared between Jewish veterans and non-Jewish German veterans, or do they perceive this experience differently? Um, I think when we're, we're when we're talking about uh, comradeship, I think it's important to distinguish uh, the primary group comradeship um, from the war uh, that, that soldiers experience in the front lines and the comradeship um, after the war, the, the, the type that was um, experienced and cultivated by, by uh, regimental associations and, and veterans organizations and various interest groups after the war. Um, very much so um, at the front lines. Again, if, if we read uh, Jewish uh, letters and diaries from the from uh, the time, it's important to know that that Jewish soldiers did encounter anti-Semitism throughout the war, and, and literally they they encountered it everywhere. It was in the barracks, it was in, in the trenches, it was uh, it was a fact of everyday life for Jewish soldiers. 
um, and um, and accusations that Jewish soldiers were avoiding uh, frontline combat. You know, this 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 was uh, this was really the main thrust behind the Jew count. You know, these allegations that uh, that uh, Jews weren't weren't dying in the same numbers as uh, as real Germans, right? Um, this um, Jews went out of their way to overturn these stereotypes, uh, to to show bravery and courage and determination in the field. And if if we believe Jewish diaries and letters in, in you know uh, that were written during this time, uh, they were wholeheartedly accepted by their uh, comrades and frontline units uh, during the war. Um, far more than talk about anti-Semitism, Jewish ego documents talk about um, inclusion and and and, uh, and and serving side by side with their with their with their fellow Germans. And this uh, this uh, primary group comradeship it was uh, based on contingency. It was uh, ad hoc. It was uh, it was a response to life threatening dangers and uh, and life threatening situations. Um, it was a, a means to alleviate the stress um, and the hardships of the, of the front that included uh, that included um, um, that that included the fear of dying, fear of the suffering wounds, and and killing. Um, and this this kind of comradeship, this kind of uh, contingency, just couldn't be replicated after the war in in peacetime society. I think after the war. Um, comradeship far more became about uh, memories of, of that conflict, and it was uh, infused with uh, with politics in many cases. And we see this kind of you know happening today after our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Right there's there's already um, a lot of talk about what went wrong, and um, and, uh, and and different people who had served in Afghanistan kind of uh, tend to tend to have different views on on why the U.S. Uh, fail there. Why, in, in, in essence, that war was lost, and you had the same thing going on in Germany. Um, and in Germany, there was a, a, a group. There was a really there was a dichotomy there of, of opinions. Uh, one of them held that Germany had been had been stabbed in the back. That Germany really had not lost that war. That the army was undefeated, and it was the Allied material superiority that uh, that, that that defeated Germany. It was um, it was uh, Jews and socialists on the on the home front. And another group thought that it was actually uh, the officer corps and, uh, and the monarchy and the uh, incompetence of certain generals was uh, was at fault. And those two two camps, um, they were at odds with each other. So a lot of this unity that we see in the in the front lines, it did um, it did change, and in many cases, it did evaporate after 1918. You spend uh, you you do a lot in that chapter with veterans organizations. So can you maybe sketch out a little bit what what kind of veterans organizations existed nationally or locally? And how did, I mean, what did they do? And how did Jewish veterans participate in them? Yeah, that is, that is a, a good, a good uh, question. And, uh, and and you're right. After after the war, there were literally thousands of uh, veterans organization uh, veterans organizations uh, throughout Germany. 
Um, some of the uh, some of the largest ones um, I just uh, referred to. One of them was uh, mm-hmm. was the Stahlhelm, which was a, a, a right wing nationalist veterans organization, and uh, and the Stahlhelm it was probably the most influential veterans organization during the 1920s because it really shaped a lot of nationalist discourses and memories of the war. And this was uh, really a memory of the war that that was. Um, that was really grounded in this notion that Germany had been betrayed, that it wasn't uh, the army's fault that they had lost the war. It was the politicians on the home front, uh, socialists and Jews who had undermined Germany's war effort. This was uh, one of the largest organizations, and um, it also um, it also passed an Aryan paragraph in 1924, which banned uh, Jewish membership, which was uh, an interesting case in and of itself. Um, Jewish veterans, they actually formed uh, their own organization immediately after the war, largely as a response to uh, to rising anti-Semitism and usually as a as a as a, you know, as a as a means, as an interest group to 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 counter these accusations that were already surfacing that that Jews had been cowardly, that they had been uh, traitors and war profiteers. Uh, this re- veterans organization was the Reichsbund Jüdischer Frontsoldaten, the Reich Association of World War One veterans of of, of Jewish uh, frontline World War One veterans. And the interesting thing about this association is that it adopted many of the nationalist narratives uh, that were also being propagated by the Stahlhelm. Um, it also, um, it also in, it, in its newsletters and in, it, in its speeches, um, in its gatherings, um, it also pushed this narrative of, uh, of, of the undefeated army, which was so central to the stab in the back narrative. This idea that the German army really wasn't responsible for Germany's defeat. It was allied military superiority. It was, uh, it was um, industrialists. It was a lot of things. But the army it, it itself uh, was, was undefeated. And interestingly enough, it had at, at times, I mean, depending on location in, uh, in Germany and depending on the time period, it also had, um, you know, um, an ambiguous relationship with the Stahlhelm. In some, t- in some towns and regions in Germany, these two organizations worked together. They a- a- attended the same reunions. Uh, they worked on, on the same commemoration projects. Um, uh, they, they collaborated on, on, on outings and, and things like that. So it was really um, interesting uh, that, the, that the Jewish organization was really also adopting this, this, this very um, pro-German, pro-nationalist memory of, uh, of, of World War I. One of the other big organizations was the, um, was the Reichsbanner, which was a, a socialist veterans organization, it was actually the largest veterans organization in Nazi Germany. And the interesting thing is that is that uh, is that uh, the that that the RJF, this is the Jewish uh, Association of War Veterans, they really didn't want to be seen as as uh, as being too close to the socialists, right? They they they. I mean, if if people are accusing Jews of being traitors and and cowards and not being sufficiently patriotic, not being sufficiently invested in Germany's cause in World War I. Um, you know, they, they, you don't, one doesn't want to necessarily cavort with uh, socialists. And so there is a, a tension between uh, the Jewish organization and the Reichsbanner that, that, was, that was never entirely overcome. 
Um, that was on the national level. And, and there were, again, as mentioned before, there were tensions between these, these big organizations, these nationally based organizations. On a much lower level on, on, in small towns in Germany, you also had regimental associations. And these were unique to Germany uh, in a number of ways, mainly because of the recruiting practices of the German military. Um, German regiments, they recruited locally. So in Würzburg, for example, there were uh, two regiments there that recruited um, from, from, uh, from Würzburg and the, and the small surrounding towns, meaning that everybody in that regiment was, uh, was, was, was from the same area. Many of the people knew each other. They had gone to school together. They had, uh, they had seen each other in, in town. Um, after the war, these regimental associations, they were populated, you know, again, with people who had served in, in the same regiment. So um, it wasn't unusual for two people in the same veterans group to have actually served in the same unit uh, during the war. And um, on that level, um, relations were markedly different than on this national level. You had, uh, you had Jews, Christians and, and Protestants all cavorting together. Um, under the banner of, a, of, of the old regiment. Um, and in this, and um, yeah, the, the patterns of relations were, were much different and that would prevail really until the early Nazi years where Jews were accepted. Uh, they would have synagogue services when, when, during veterans gathering when the regiment got together alongside church services. Uh, Jews were elected as chairman of, of local regimental associations and um, if you look at the membership of local regimental associations, you'll find that that many of the mem uh, of, of the members held concurrent memberships in nationalists or socialists organizations as well. It was a gathering place of a, of, of a lot of different um, backgrounds. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So one of the really interesting parts of the book is, is a examination of the lens of the way in which Jewish veterans understood what it was to be a man and what masculinity meant, um, which of course derives to some extent from their upbringing and their families, but also is shaped by their military experience. So so what does it mean to these Jewish veterans to be a man and to be a German? And are those two kind of overlapping or distinctive or talk to us a little bit about those kind of identities? 
Yeah, also a good uh, question, Kelly. And uh, and yes, masculinity is really is, is really central to this story. I think it's central to understanding militaries and, and soldiering and uh, and gender relations um, in the 19th and the first half of the 20th century, even even today, arguably. But um, in 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 Imperial Germany, in the, in the, starting in, in the late nineteenth centuries, uh, ni- late nineteenth century, uh, young German men were expected to f- fulfill uh, certain ideals, certain masculine ideals that were uh, strongly identified with the image of a of a soldier, um, and you know. Uh, these these bourgeois images or or expectations of masculinity um, included uh, stoicism and include uh, the ability to um, uh, to make rational decisions. You know, of, of being a, a rational man, and um, and this 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 masculinity this uh, this gave Jews a, a means to subvert anti-Semitic stereotypes. This is why. Um, hegemonic masculinity or normative masculinity was so important to Jewish men growing up in Imperial Germany and, uh, and, and later on. And it's important to note that uh, that during the 19th and first half of the 20th century, German German nationalists tend to portray Jews as kind of a, a foreign ethnic group living on German soil, an, an un-German minority uh, that that was that that was living in Germany, and they accused Jews of being insufficiently patriotic. Um, insufficiently loyal to the nation, um, and uh, even more so, they accuse Jewish men as being feeble, uh, as being effeminate, of being cowardly. These were men who lacked the physical and and, and moral qualities that were needed uh, to really be a good citizen. And, and really, what they were doing, they were they were um, attacking or questioning Jews' uh, suitability, suitability to be uh, to be good Germans. Um, and even 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 before the Nazis came to power, there are a lot of stereotypes about the shortcom the physical shortcomings of Jewish men. They were portrayed as as, as being selfish, as as deceitful, as dishonorable, as dishonorable, as, as unmanly. And uh, more importantly, they were portrayed as being unwilling to risk their lives for the for the fatherland, right? And uh, and we look if we see uh, if we look at Nazi characters of Jews and and, and there were um, you know we, we see caricatures earlier than this but during the 1920s uh, as as um, these newspapers like uh, like Der Sturmer uh, were, were were being released we see that Jews in those uh, propaganda papers were depicted more or less identically right they were they were very they were short they were pudgy they were stocky they had uh, they had uh, fat bellies they were um, they, they had ungroomed beards um, and and these the, these images were the antithesis of the German soldierly male and. These weren't just crude representations. I always wondered for a long time, you know, you know what 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 the what the point of these was. Obviously, nobody would believe that that uh, that you'd find real people that that uh, that resembled these characters. But uh, but there's a point to this, and the point was uh, to remind the German public that Jews were unworthy of German citizenship. They were unworthy of emancipation. That they could never truly fit into German society. They could never, you know, despite assimilation. Um, all this talk about assimilation and um, enculturation, they would always be Jews. They would always be uh, the other. This assimilation was just a facade. And so um, 
these normative uh, masculine uh, values, um, they were very a- attractive to Jews because it gave them a chance to, to kind of shake off or unburden themselves of, 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 these, uh, of these negative stereotypes. Um, they were very drawn to the military, you know, because the, the military, um, they emphasized values like courage and uh, self-assertion and endurance. Um, and this was a means to obliterate this negative image of, of, of a weak, um, unmanly Jew. Um, one of the ways that uh, I, I believe he asked me uh, where the army fit into this, Kelly, and uh, and, and one of the uh, one of the means that a Jew uh, a Jewish man could overcome overturn these stereotypes was through military service. And I think in order to understand masculine in Germany, uh, masculinity in Germany, um, you have to also understand the role of the army at the time. It was seen as the at the school of the nation. But um, unofficially, it was also called the school of manhood because this was a place where young boys went. You know, they were sent off and went into the army as young boys, and they returned as young as as real men. You know, this was a kind of a, a masculine rite of passage, uh, becoming a soldier. So this was uh, this was really a way for uh, Jews to to shake off uh, and to unburden themselves of stereotypes of, of weakness. So let's look at the, 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 the beginning of the Nazi period and how all of this played out. And a, and a couple of years ago, I interviewed Peter Fritsche about his book, Hitler's First Hundred Days. Uh, and, and that book reminds us about how dramatic the events and experiences of those first few months of Nazi rule really was. So I wonder how Jewish veterans encountered and understood Nazis and Nazism in that period just before or just after uh, Hitler becomes chancellor. Yeah, Kelly, I think um, I think Jewish veterans they reacted to uh, to the Nazi takeover much like many other uh, much like other Jewish Germans did at the time. There was a sense of, of disbelief uh, that that Hitler had been appointed chancellor. But um, if, if we look at the writings of war veterans during this time, there was um, there was no sense of, of panic um, at the time. They couldn't believe that Germany would uh, betray them. They believed that they had uh, the backing of the German public, that they had the backing of uh, influential conservative elites, and that they also had the backing of key institutions uh, such as uh, the army. Um, like many Jews, they didn't, or like many Germans at the time, actually, they didn't really take Hitler's rhetoric seriously. Um, and they thought that they they would be safe. And, and, and one of the reasons why they did was their experience during the Weimar, Weimar Republic, their experience confronting um, anti-Semitic activists uh, using their record of war service uh, to, uh, to overturn anti-Semitic stereotypes. Um, these behaviors, these, these responses during the Weimar period, uh, they led Jews to, Jewish veterans to believe uh, that they would not be betrayed uh, by Germany, even now that the Nazis were in power. Um, like a lot of Germans, they thought that, uh, that, that the, the Third Reich would be short-lived, that Hitler was really just, just a, a useful idiot for Hindenburg and the conservatives, and, and that, that he, he would not last. And uh, they were convinced that Hindenburg, especially Hindenburg, they had a lot of, of faith in, in Hindenburg and uh, several of the several other prominent conservatives, that they would be a break on Hitler's radicalism. 
So their first response really was one of uh, was was one of optimistic caution, I guess. Um, and they were, you know, uh, they were committed to outlasting Hitler's Reich. Mm. So the conventional narrative, and you referred to this a little bit earlier, has um, features then kind of walking through a series of increasingly uh, restrictive Nazi legislation um, with maybe the Nuremberg laws being a particularly high point in that process. And uh, talking about how Jews were identified and isolated and um, and how their wealth and property was taken away from them. How well does that kind of conventional narrative of the 30s fit the experience of Jewish veterans? Yeah, Kelly, this was one of the reasons why I was so fascinated about uh, about the stories I read of, of, of Julius Kutzmann, of, uh, of Richard, uh, Richard Stan, and other Jewish veterans, because they, they seemed to uh, defy that narrative that uh, the Jews were, were powerless um, after 1933, um, that they didn't have any agency um, during the Holocaust. Um, and that they had been um, relegated to the mar- uh, to the margins, to the fringes of German society by 1935 at the latest, with the passage of the Nuremberg Laws. And um, in, in 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 one of the claims was was that Jews had suffered a quote unquote social death by at least 1935, meaning that they had lost all their friends, they had lost their neighbors, they had become neighborless, and they had uh, lost, they had been kicked out of institutions and and, uh, lost jobs, and they had lost, pretty much lost all their ties and connections to their communities and to German society in general. And uh, I found that uh, to, to just not be the case uh, when looking at, uh, at, at many Jewish uh, veterans, um, by looking at the Gestapo files in Würzburg, for example, um, or in, in, in some of the uh, police records that are that are still in existence there, um, it, you know what what I what I learned was that uh, many Jewish veterans were still uh, were not kicked out of their job, did not lose their um, employment until after Kristallnacht. They were uh, they remained, especially those working in private businesses or uh, being employed. Um, in in uh, those employed by by other uh, by industries, uh, they retained their jobs, um, even though there were efforts by local anti-Semitic activists uh, to get them to get them kicked out, to get them fired, um, and, and and many of their employers refused to do that. And, and there were uh, many court cases where Jewish veterans successfully a- appealed to a court. And and, and this is 1935, 1936. Um, Jewish veterans went went to a, a Nazi judge and appealed their case um, and and won. Not all the time, but uh, there were times when they when they did win when they overturned this ruling, mainly based on the fact that these had been um, Jews who had quote unquote proven their Germanists during the war. And so I thought uh, I thought this was this was fascinating. Um, there were many uh, Jewish veterans who owned businesses, um, and they still had uh, loyal patrons all the way up until 1938. Um, in in terms of uh, anti-Semitic laws, which you mentioned, uh, there were a series of ordinances that were passed be- beginning in, in 1933 that uh, forced Jews out of the civil service, that uh, that prevented Jews from becoming lawyers, prevented Jews from becoming doctors. 
And uh, from the very beginning, um, Jewish veterans um, opposed and challenged these measures, um, and they found uh, they found uh, their their supporter, their mouthpiece in people like Hindenburg and other and other uh, senior uh, conservatives that were in the government and the army at the time. Um, Hindenburg famously, as a result of the petitions and letters he was getting from Jewish veterans and from war widows, um, he ordered Hitler, um, in, in no uncertain terms, he ordered Hitler to exempt uh, Jewish veterans, Jewish former soldiers from these anti-Semitic uh, laws that were being passed in the 1930s. Um, interesting thing about Hindenburg is that uh, he, he was he was not a philo-Semite by any means. He never once intervened in Hitler's anti-Jewish policies be, besides this this one time. It was the only time he would ever get involved in um, in anti-Semitic legislation. Um, he didn't seem too concerned about the injustices that were being carried out against um, other Jews. But when it came to veterans, he intervened and he instructed Hitler to, uh, to create a, a, a veterans clause whereby veterans were um, exempted from these anti-Semitic measures. So that's why in, in, nine, by nine, in, in the early 1930s, you see Victor Klemper um, in Dresden, uh, university professors, other professors were being uh, were being dismissed. He was able to keep his job, his uh, his, uh, his position as a professor, because he was a, a frontline veteran. And you see this all over Germany at the time. Um, you mentioned the Nuremberg Laws, Kelly, and um, and uh, and these are uh, crucial as well. Hindenburg died in, in 1934. This was a, a, a really a, a great moment of. Um, of uncertainty for German Jews because, um, you know, rightly they, they wondered what would happen now that, that, uh, that all, you know, the last restraints on, 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 on Hitler's total power were now removed. And, uh, and, and the Nuremberg laws officially um, did away with a lot of the veterans exemptions uh, that you see, but, uh, but, but nevertheless, there were still uh, clauses that uh, in uh, legal loopholes that allowed Jewish veterans to remain lawyers, doctors, um, and in other certain professions. And, you know, as I mentioned, private businesses. This, were, this was uh, an area where many Jewish veterans, their, their businesses remained, um, uh, were, were in, intact until, until much later. So this narrative of, of social death, of, of powerlessness, of, uh, of 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 becoming neighborless in Nazi Germany, they were not. Uh, that was not always the case with uh, with these Jewish former soldiers. And so, to flip the question around, in a sense, what is the the willing the ability of Jewish veterans to call upon that veteran's identity to protect their business or their job or their livelihoods? What can that tell us about the way in which the Nazi regime worked and the way in which um, the, the hopes and dreams of some of the uh, Nazi leadership interacted with relationships with the army or relationships with, and I know the language here is problematic, but German-German veterans? How, how, what, what can we learn about that from this? Yeah, Kelly, interesting question. And um, and I think 
I think two, two things I, I think that are that are that are worth mentioning in here. And I think you had uh, really uh, two competing narratives uh, during during the Third Reich. Uh, number one, you had this uh, the, this narrative that portrayed Jews as as being this uh, as, as being an internal enemy, this uh, foreign ethnic group living in the Reich that was uh, that was inherently hostile to German, this this un-German. Uh, German mi- minority that had been responsible for Germany's defeat in, in World War One. You had this on the one hand, then on the other hand, you had another narrative that uh, that 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 really that really um, that really gave the Frontkämpfer, the frontline veteran of uh, World War One, um, and it, it, uh, that placed them in immense pr- position of prestige during the Third Reich. Uh, the the frontline veteran of World War One in Germany was uh, was somebody whose um, national reliability, his patriotism, um, these things were, were taken for granted. Um, it was uh, it was a it was a high status in Germany, and at the same time, you had uh, Jewish frontline veterans of World War One that, uh, in many ways, were able to use this narrative, uh, one of the narratives of. Uh, to overturn anti-Semitic stereotypes of disloyalty and lack of patriotism and uh, unmanliness, so um, so it, it gave Jewish veterans a means to a means to assert themselves in public. Um, and self-assertion was, um, you know, we we see that Jewish veteran self-assertion where they were able to. Uh, use the symbolic capital of the war, right? They were able to to to, to put on their their medals and pieces of the uniform from World War One to to identify themselves publicly as, as veterans um, and directly challenge the Nazis, uh, directly challenge um, Nazi ordinances and Nazis law, uh, Nazi laws, and uh, and to uh, and to overturn these these um, these negative anti-Semitic stereotypes that we discussed, and in doing so. It, uh, it caused a lot of ambiguity and discomfort among ordinary Germans. Um, Germans just weren't weren't comfortable, and, and we know this by looking at Gestapo reports and by um, and, 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 and police reports and other records. Germans uh, weren't comfortable um, persecuting Jews who had also fought in World War One, you know, uh, and persecuting veterans who were who were war wounded or who uh, sported an, an Iron Cross. Um, who were sporting it on their on their civilian clothes? This caused a lot of this caused a lot of uh, discomfort among um, ordinary Germans, and it gave Jewish veterans a mean to overcome the shame, to alleviate the shame, and to um, and and to kind of overcome this sense of of powerlessness that other Jews were feeling at the time. And I think this says something also about uh, the attitudes of conservatives and the attitudes of many officers uh, during this period of the Third Reich. Um, conservatives and, and members of the officer corps, they were, uh, I mean, they, they, they certainly supported Nazi anti-Semitism to um, a certain degree. But uh, we see here in, in their responses to the persecution of veterans that there were limits. You know, they did not share this unlimited anti-Semitism of the Nazi party. Uh, this stopped when they were talking when when the target of anti-Semitic action was uh, a Jewish veteran who had served in the same unit as, as them or had, uh, had had proven their Germanists at the front lines. And so, uh, and so many we, we see this in, in many cases. Many um, many army officers, or even you know, um, I want to call them quote unquote moderate 
members of the Nazi party, um, many of them would make exceptions for uh, for Jewish veterans. And ironically, you, you would see, um, you know, during during the Holocaust after 1941, um, as many of these same people were feverishly working to murder Jews to put the final solution into practice. At the same time, they're, they're ser- ser- uh, saving certain individuals, such as uh, war veterans, from being murdered. So this is this is a, an interesting dynamic you see going on here. And again, I show I think it shows the limits of, uh, of, of anti-Semitism that Germans were willing to accept. Yeah. So there's lots to say about the, the experience um, from the period 41 to 45. And our time is drawing a little short. So so I would point uh, listeners to the book itself. But I would ask so a couple of questions about that. One is or they're related, I guess, which is how do, how does their status at vet, as veterans shape the kind of roles they were able to adopt after Jewish veterans were deported? And how do they, Jewish veterans, see their military and combat experience relating to the challenge of uh, living in a concentration camp or ghetto. Mm-hmm. I think in, in general, um, when we look at the experience of Jewish veterans in camps, beginning with uh, after Kristallnacht, where they were deported to uh, Dachau, Buchenwald, and, and Sachsenhausen, right after the pogrom, all the way um, to, uh, to 1941 as Jewish um, uh, Jewish War One veterans were included in the deportations to to to, Wuj, to the ghettos in Eastern Europe and later Auschwitz and Theresienstadt. Um, you know, when 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 reading Jewish accounts of these experiences, um, at first it it seems, I mean, it becomes, I mean, it's it's clear that they experienced the same brutality, uh, that they experienced the same humiliations and deprivations as all other Jews, but. But uh, but after after reading after reading a lot of these uh, uh, um, a number of things uh, stand out. Um, and first is that their military experience, you know, their experience of going through basic training, of, uh, of fighting in the war, of soldiering, it um, it enabled them to adapt to the camp much easier than uh, than those Jews who uh, who had not served in the military. Uh, they weren't as intimidated by uh, by the SS guards. They were they were they're used to the military commands and the, and the drill. They were used to living in, in very tight quarters and to have uh, poor bath you know small bathrooms and and uh, lack of sanitation. Th- these aren't things that really that really shocked them. They had uh, endured that uh, before, so they were uh, certainly able to, um, uh, to to adapt to the to the shock. Of, uh, of landing in a concentration camp and uh, adapting to these uh, realities. Um, we also see something else here. And, um, and in, in, in a way, I think for most of, or many if not most Jewish veterans, they saw incarceration in the camps as kind of an endurance test. And what I mean by that is, is that they were determined to overcome the hardships, to um, endure this brutality that was uh, meted out by the SS by the SS guards, um, and and not to let the Nazis de- deprive them of their honor. 
and uh, and we and they, they talk about this a lot. Uh, there is a, a, a very a valuable, valuable trove of documents at Harvard University. Um, about 230 testimonies were collected in 1940 as part of an essay contest. And what makes this interesting is that uh, many of those 230 um, authors of these pieces, they had been incarcerated during Kristallnacht. So their, their, their memories are, are, are relatively fresh. They still don't know about the Holocaust, about what, what's going to come next. Um, but if, if we read those, um, if, if we read these uh, testimonies, we see that they were determined not to let the uh, not to let the SS deprive them of, of their status. Uh, they were determined to show the SS that they were real men, that they were not cowards. Again, this is this, they, here they were overturning and attempting to obliterate these anti-Semitic stereotypes, right? Um, and, um, and even more than that, they saw themselves as a, as a kind of a, a masculine role models during um, during their incarceration at the camp. They, 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 they tended to corral the other younger Jews um, and, and kind of stiffen their backs. They saw themselves as father figures for many of the other prisoners. And, uh, and, and we see this in many of the accounts, you know, um, as veterans uh, describe themselves. They, uh, they describe themselves as being much, uh, much tougher, much more adaptable to the camp than, than other inmates. Um, Albert, uh, Albert Schwerin, he wrote when he described his experience at, at uh, Dachau, he, he said, I've never seen so many cr- men cry as I have at Dachau. And when he said that, uh, interestingly enough, he wasn't talking about himself. You know, he was talking about all the other Jews, uh, Jewish prisoners in the camp. He described himself more as, as an observer to this, more than a, a victim. Um, and so this endurance, this uh, this this does not uh, becoming a victim to the SS um, again, it allowed them to uh, to alleviate the sense of powerlessness. Um, it was really a, a means of of redemption, of uh, of redeeming redeeming themselves. And this is a, a narrative, you know, this this narrative of redemption. You see this from 1938 all through the uh, through the Holocaust in the in the Nazi years. So it's a fascinating book. I'll, I'll pull back with a couple final questions. And, and one of them is, and I don't know if you can find this out. Uh, I don't know if the sources are there, but do you have any guesses about how the families or the partners of Jewish veterans perceive this whole process? Do they, I, I don't even know what that would look like, but um, do you think those families experienced this process in a way which was different than the veterans themselves or different than families that did not have veterans? Do you have any speculation about that? Kelly, yeah, that's, 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 a, that, that's a fascinating question and as, as well as, 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 all of them, as all of them were. And, and I'll, I'll say this. Um, I used a lot of sources that were written by um, family members of Jewish veterans, by spouses, by girlfriends, by uh, sisters and, and, and mothers and things like that, because um, a, a lot of times you, you get uh, insights in, into how veterans reacted and, and, or to certain events or thought about something. You get new insights um, because, uh, because they reveal things that net veterans themselves wouldn't necessarily talk about, right? So I, I remember uh, looking at, at, at one testimony by the wife of a Jewish veteran, and, uh, and she was stating that, uh, that her husband was really disturbed by, uh, um, 
you know, during the 1930s as Hitler youth and SA men would march through the streets singing anti-Semitic songs, um, you know, that talked about, you know, uh, killing Jews with a knife and that Jews were, were, were traitors to the fatherland. And, uh, and that he was really, really disturbed by this and that he would come home at night and sometimes be racked by fear. Um, if you read the testimony of that veteran, though, he never mentions being afraid. You know, because of, of course, you know uh, his, you know, in, in his own words, you know, he he, he uh, portrayed himself as, as as not being intimidated by these Nazi thugs. Many of them who were much too young to have ever served in the war, right? He, I mean, there's a tendency for Jewish veterans to denigrate the SS and and Nazi Party members, but uh, but they don't really talk about fear or uncertainty too much in their own testimony. So th- this is a valuable piece you get from. From from reading those uh, that were that were that we have from family members, and I don't know, you know, um, to complicate a question about about spouses and, and and wives and things like that. I will tell you that there was some, um, yeah, there was some tension between non veterans and veterans in the Jewish community after 1933, and one of the reasons was because Jewish veterans responded to the Nazi takeover by claiming. That, uh, that they had been loyal Germans during the war, that they had fought honorably, that they were willing to sacrifice um, for the fatherland, just as other Germans had done. And, uh, and in doing so, um, what, what, you know, if you kind of look at the flip side of that, that narrative, um, you know, if, if, you use that, if you use that record of military service to claim that you should be exempt from Nazi racial laws, at the same time, you know, non-veterans believe that, uh, that it, really, it really justified the Nazi persecution of Jews who hadn't served in the army. Either because or hadn't served at the front line, either because they were phys- not physically fit or they were they were, they were too young. So um, so for this reason, there was a there was some tension there between non-veterans and veterans. Hmm. And the other broad kind of question about this, I wonder what, if any, questions or insights that that working on this book has given you into broader approaches to the Holocaust or, or to genocide studies? Are there new questions that you're thinking about that are prompted by this book or, or new things that genocide scholars should pay attention to? What are the broader implications of this? I think one of the broader implications of this is that, uh, is this, um, is a centrality of masculinity here. Um, you know, uh, as, as I mentioned as I mentioned again and again in the book, I mean, masculinity is really central to the story of Jewish, Jewish veterans during the Holocaust. Masculinity as a resource of Jewish agency during the Holocaust. And this is, a, this is an understudied topic as well, because uh, there have been a lot of studies about uh, gender during the Holocaust um, that uh, may have mainly focused on, on women for the, for the most part. Uh, this, you know, you know, many people still conflate um, Gender with, uh, with 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 studies that um, only have to do with women, un- unfortunately, and that's that's certainly not the case. But uh, but masculinity in itself, I think this is an under uh, understudied area of, of the Holocaust, and I think in, in the last couple of years there has been some work done on that. But I think I think I think there's still room for a lot more of that. You know how, how Jews use that as a, as a means to uh, to defy and uh, and and resist the Nazi regime. I also think um, th- th- this is a this is this has really led me uh, 
to ponder um, Jewish identity in, in, in Germany. And, and what I mean by that is that, uh, is that you know, the study shows that, uh, that, that Jews were not always leftists or liberal or athletes or, or kind fathers or supporters of Jewish causes like, like, many, like many studies of the Holocaust. I mean, they kind of uh, support this narrative. This is uh, in the background of many histories of, of the Holocaust, this notion that Jews were part of the conservative political milieu in Germany, I think, is also um, a relatively understudied topic. And there's only just very recently there's been some, uh, there, there's, there's been some work done in that area. So uh, these are two other areas that I think, you know, this study of Jewish veterans, it gives an, an opening for anybody to pursue. No, I think that's really astute. And I will point listeners to an interview I did six months ago, maybe with Ed Westerman, about his book, Drunk on Genocide, where he's examining similar questions of masculinity, in this case, for the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm struck. We've, I, I do think there has been more attention paid to this in some ways in Holocaust studies than in examinations of some other genocides. And I think that's a rich area for people to explore, but I've taken a lot of your time uh, and you've been very generous. I, and I thank you for that. I just have the two final questions that I always end with. First is um, before the flood of grading hits me for the semester and maybe it's too late. I don't even want to look at my desk right now, but um do you have a suggestion about a book or two or a movie or something for, for, for the audience or for me, uh, something that was meaningful for you as you were reading this and understanding, um, just broadly speaking, maybe the history of the topic or the history of the period, or what, what would you suggest that I read? Yeah, of course. I, I always like suggesting books and, and movies, and um, I think I'll start with a book. I think one of if for people interested in this topic of uh, of Jewish military service in Germany, especially military service during World War One, I, I highly recommend Tim Grady's book, A Deadly Legacy, um, and it's a book that that looks at uh, the, uh, the role of of German Jews during the First World War. Um, not just uh, in their capacity as soldiers, but as industrialists, as as politicians, um, as, uh, as 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 leaders of interest groups, and as community members. Um, I think it's really well written. It's one of these uh, history books that oftentimes it's it has an urgency and the pace of a novel. It's this really uh, fascinating read. It's it's one of these books that uh, other not just other professors are reading. So that's my book recommendation. I think for a movie, um, and I have to say this, this, this movie, um, a lot of people might not ever heard of, heard about it. It's a movie called forbidden and it was, um, produced in, in 1984 and the star is, uh, the, the main role is Jürgen Pochnoff. A lot of people may remember him from, uh, from Das Boot. He was the, he was the commander. And he plays um, a German Jew, a, Jew, a Jewish veteran who uh, goes into hiding in Berlin. And it's a it's it's a really good movie. It was a German uh, it was a German British uh, German British production, I believe. But uh, it, it's, you can watch it on YouTube. And the acting is is good. And it's uh, it's not sensationalized. I think um, as far as accuracy, it's one of the better movies out there. Hmm. So give it a shot. I will do that. I'm sure my students will be happy to hear me say that I've watched a movie instead of grading. So you've given me an excuse. And the final question, what are you working on now? 
what I'm working on now. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying that I have uh, two children, uh, a wonderful <laughs> four-year-old daughter and an 18-month-old son who's in the midst of teething right now. So mm. I, I have a, uh, I have a lot of um, ambition. And one of the things I'd, I'd, um, um, I'd like to work on is uh, is a study of the Fry Corps during the interwar period. And the reason why I'm interested in that topic is because um, during my research on Jewish veterans, I, I, I saw that a lot of Jews had served in the Fry Corps in, in the 1920s. There were a significant number of Fry Corps um, uh, a Jewish Fry Corps soldiers there, and again, this this kind of goes against this narrative that we have of 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 that that period where Jews were really not part of that history. So this led me to um, you know to look at the Fry Corps more generally um, and it, its role in um, in, uh, in in later it's you know the influence of these campaigns and Germany's war of annihilation during World War II. Um, again, I, this is this is my ambition. I haven't gotten very far yet. But, uh, once my kids, as they grow older, I'll be able to talk about this more and more. I hope. Well, I can tell you, as the parent of two teenagers, that my ambitions to be more productive when they got older have some hot times worked out and sometimes not. But as you progress on that, I hope that you'll join us again to. Uh, talk about your new research. We've been listening to uh, Michael Guerin talk about his book, Comrades Betrayed, Jewish World War I Veterans Under Hitler. I hope you'll join me next time when I uh, talk again to Saskia Wieringa uh, about her research about the genocide in Indonesia. But for now, Mike, thank you for being with us and have a wonderful semester. Thank you, Kelly. You do the same. My pleasure. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.